RFID with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to episode 169 of the Robots Podcast. I am Jana and today we will meet Dr. Travis Dale and learn more about a new way to help robots find objects among clutter. But first, as always, here are the news with Christine. Thanks, Jana. Have you ever seen a robot dance? Odd.io has created a robot to do just that. Meet Wiggle. Wiggle has been created by Odd.io as an interactive robot for music education. The robot looks like a small white turtle shell that has smiling eyes and ear holes. It hears with a microphone and rolls around on hidden wheels. To control Wiggle, one uses musical notes, such as that from a recorder, guitar or one's voice. By sequencing notes together, children can make wiggle dance and even uncover so-called secret dances. Since winning the Crowd Pleaser Award at RoboHub's Robot Launch 2014, Odd.io has launched a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo with the goal of bringing wiggle to the public. Good luck, Odd.io! Robots are increasingly used in supermarkets, at exhibitions, in museums and other venues as guides or information providers. Recently, fellow robots, in partnership with Lowe's Hardware, began a trial to help determine the benefits of a mobile robot assistant in retail. They have launched the Oshbot as a customer assistant robot at the Orchard Supply Hardware Store in San Jose. Oshbot is a tall white column mobile robot with two large screens. People can interact with the tablets to search for items or more information about products and ask the robot directly where to find things. Customers can also bring a part into the store and have Oshbot scan it. The chief executive officer of fellow robots, Marco Mascoro, said, With Oshbot, we've worked closely with Lowe's Innovation Labs to take autonomous retail service robot technology out of the sandbox and into the consumer market, enhancing the in-store consumer experience and creating smarter shoppers. For more information on educational and service robots, visit robohub.org. While robots ordinarily use laser vision or cameras to locate objects, researchers at Georgia Tech have now come up with a new complementary way to help robots find what they're looking for in slightly more cluttered, or let's be honest, realistic conditions. The team developed small ultra-high-frequency radio-frequency identification RFID tags with which the robots can essentially sense what is around them. Dr. Travis Dale, whose thesis was all about RFID technology, just presented this research at IROS. Our interviewer Sabine spoke to him about RFID, his blog Hizuk, and about what it takes to go from academia to building a successful startup and finally working for Google. Hi Travis, welcome to Robots. Thanks Sabine. 
Do you want to start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so my name is Travis Dial, uh, and I did my PhD at Georgia Tech in the healthcare robotics lab. So I worked with a lot of large mobile manipulating robots there. Uh, after Georgia Tech, I headed up to Duke University, did a postdoc, um, and now I'm working at Google X. Dream trajectory for a lot of a lot of young roboticists. You're nominated for Best Paper Award here at Iowa. So you want to tell us a little bit more about your research? Absolutely. So the research that we're presenting today is about affixing these very small labels to various household objects. So things you would typically find in your home, like a TV remote, a hairbrush, toys, and medication. And by attaching these tags, these Band-Aid-like tags, we're able to get precise identity information about various objects. The problem is that the tags alone do not provide location information. So what we've done is developed a series of very simple robot behaviors that allow the robot to navigate up to the tags and orient towards them. So it's not actually localizing the tag per se, but getting very close to that so that you can bring other sensors to bear. Compared to things like vision and lasers, this is really neat because one, you don't need line of sight, two, it provides precise identity, and three, it can work in cases where there might be a, a large risk if you didn't get identification right. So for example, with medication bottles and things like that. So you actually have one in your hand. Do you want to describe it to us? Sure. So it's about 10 centimeters long by one centimeter wide. And it literally looks like a Band-Aid in that it's super thin. It's basically a piece of paper. And there's a very small electric cir or integrated circuit chip sitting in the middle. So it's mostly antenna, and it has this tiny, tiny integrated circuit that provides the identification. So these tags actually have no battery. They're long-range RFID, so they operate at about 900 megahertz. Um, and they can be read from about six meters away when you have perfect line of sight. More practically, when you start tagging objects and you have them in a home, you get maybe a three-meter range. So it's a bit different from the classic RFID you might have in your wallet or for access control. So how does the robot go and find these tags? Yeah, so the behaviors are very simple. Um, they rely on having a directional antenna, which you can think of as being sort of like uh, a metal detector of sorts. Um, and this antenna has a beam, and the robot moves around and points these antennas in different directions, and all it's doing is looking for where it gets the strongest signal. So the, we came up with three behaviors that we use. One, the robot can traverse around a room and just look for all the tags in the environment. And then once you know what you want, the robot goes back to where it saw that tag, and it pans the antenna around, and it orients itself in the direction where it got the strongest signal. And then the third behavior is just to use two different antennas and servo based on the different signal. And then it'll continue moving until it gets obstructed by an obstacle. And what we found in our paper is that these three simple behaviors combined allow the robot to navigate to, to find the tag and then navigate up to it. Um, and in fact, we have results that are unpublished that actually compare this uh, to sort of probabilistic techniques. And it, for the objective measures that we use, it's either on par or better than using the probabilistic techniques alone. Of course, you could imagine combining them to get um, even better results. There's been quite a few techniques to go up gradients with robots, and I wonder what mm -hmm. makes it difficult with RFID. Yeah, so that's actually a very good point. So this is very classic uh, robot behavior-based techniques. Um, RFID is sort of unique in the sense that there's a whole lot of things that can dramatically change the signals you get from tags. So you have classic things like 
um, multipath where signals bounce off walls. Um, you have other things like shadowing where maybe I'm blocking the signal because there's something in the way. But RFID actually has this very troublesome um, aspect to it in that if you start tagging objects, now you have objects in lots of different poses and around lots of different other objects. And the simple act of taking a tagged object and moving it to a new location can dramatically change the RF signals that you receive. And that's something that's very hard to capture in sort of these big data-driven models ahead of time. Uh, the models end up having to be so generic that you lose a lot of the discrimination capabilities of the model. And do the robots map as they go and basically remember where these different RFIDs are? So they find them and then that's sort of stored somewhere? In yeah, exactly right. So the robot has a map of, say, your home, and as it's going around your house doing all these other hopefully useful robot activities, um, it's able to keep track of where it last uh, obtained readings from the tags. And that way when you query and say, hey, robot, go find the tag, it, it knows to roughly go back to the location that um, it got the last positive why, why go for that rather than vision or the things that are currently? So I actually think it's a complementary thing. So I, I don't think RFID is going to replace vision and lasers. Um, and in fact, if you can use vision to do it, that's great. Um, these techniques are really well suited for, say, if you lost an object or if something is hidden out of sight. Um, then the robot can go and it's actually getting positive signals from exactly the item you want ahead of time. The other consideration, I used medication as an example. So robots could do this really powerful thing if they could deliver the right medication to the right person at the right time. But if you've ever looked inside of a medication cabinet, you'd see that like a lot of the bottles look very, very similar. So this actually gives the robot a way to precisely identify those objects, even among visually similar ones. Um, and that you know, when you're dealing with something like medication adherence, the, uh, the consequences of having a false positive are really, really dire. It sounds like this is something that's almost ready for market. Is that, is that the case? Uh, I think there's a lot of potential to use RFID to bootstrap into to, uh, marketplaces. Um, I don't know of any commercial systems right now that are using it um, beyond sort of classic inventory tracking in warehouses and things like that. Um, what we hope is that these methods, while they may not enable a robot to be immediately commercialized, that they will make that a, you know, hasten that process so that it, it, it can happen much sooner than it otherwise would. There's so many objects that you'd want robots to, to manipulate in your everyday home. Uh, does this scale to lots of RFIDs? Yeah, so these tags, uh, they're a commercial standard, and it can query for hundreds or thousands of tags in the same environment, and it can do one of two modes. In one mode, it says, every tag out there, please respond. And it has some probabilistic way in which it uh, basically uses that channel at the same time. And that's built into the standard. So we didn't have to invent anything for that to be the case. In the other way, the robot or the reader would say, uh, you know, I'm looking for this specific tag. Can only this tag you know, chime up and, and say that it's there? Um, so yeah, we can definitely do that. And as we start tagging objects around the home, um, it's kind of interesting because it's almost like giving explicit permission to a robot to actually go and interact with those items. So if you had things in your house you don't want the robot to touch, this might be a good way to actually tell it which ones are okay. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, I wanted to also go back to, to science communication because you are sure. a very well-known blogger in, in the robotics world. You have the Hizuk blog. Ha, what got you there? Why did you start it and, and where is it going? So Hizook started be, just because I had all these interesting robotics ideas that I wanted to get out there. And it was kind of just a way to get them out of my head. 
So, and once they're on paper, then you sort of have this thing that you can point to and be like, that's the idea. Um, so I wish you could say it started because of some big altruistic idea, but in reality, it was just kind of my own way of jotting down thoughts to get them on paper. Um, Would you recommend it to other, other young researchers? Or? Absolutely. So I think science communication is really, really important. Um, it becomes really necessary to be able to communicate your results to a lay audience in a way that they can understand both the amazing capabilities that you've provided to robots as well as the limitations. Uh, and I think science communication in general, everyone should start a, a, a website or at least contribute articles in such a way that um, they can communicate their results. Speaking of limitations, what are some of the limitations of your RFID tags? Absolutely. So these RFID tags, some of them, uh, the very low-cost ones are about $0.10 cents a piece. They work really great on things like plastics and cardboard and things like that. However, if you add metal, it interferes with the RF propagation um, of the signals. And so they have to make special, like, on metal tags. And so, for example, these tags can be more expensive. They might be a dollar or something per tag. Uh, I have one on my keys, actually. I wouldn't need um, one on my keys. <laughs> I would need one on everything that I own. So. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's certainly one limitation. The other, like I said, you don't get precise pose information. So in, in practice, you would probably want to combine this with either vision, you know, laser depth cameras, uh, or even short-range RFID, which is some of the other work we did. So you can imagine using you know, long-range RFID from afar, get up close, and then use short-range. Um, so there are certainly some limitations. Right. And the next steps? Uh, so the next steps are, I think the, you're going to see that uh, UHF tags are going to become more and more common. Um, in many ways, they are a form of Internet of Things in that you have this embodied intelligence sitting on a device. The next set of tags are not going to be simply identification, but they will actually have sensing on board. And so we're starting to see those commercial tags start to come out now. And so I think there's some very interesting possibilities for tags that you know, they're battery-free, they harvest all of their energy, they have general-purpose computation, general-purpose sensing on board, um, and you can start embedding them in every type of device out there for basically no cost. So you, you have a trajectory that a lot, of, a lot of young researchers would like to have. So in the academic world, and then the startup world, you founded a successful startup, and then, and then Google. So you've seen a lot of things that people are hesitating, right? They're like, should I go to industry? Should I do a startup? Should I do academia? Do you have any tips? Like, wait... Are you happy with what you did? Would you change it, and, and why? Uh, I'm pretty happy with it. I would say I've been opportunistic um, throughout the whole process. Sadly, I'm not super dogmatic about just robotics. I think that uh, a lot of fundamental robotic technologies have potentials to be startups on their own. Um, some examples might even be like depth cameras and structure for motion mapping. We're starting to see a lot of products outside the robotics realm that are actually using these and being very successful, providing a lot of value. So I think robotics is great because it pulls together everything, and it also has this potential to explode into separate little entities. Um, I'm sure that someday I'll come back to robotics, uh, just because you know, sensing and actuation, perception, you get a little bit of everything. Um, so yeah. Okay. So the tip would be to be opportunistic. Go for it. I think so. Yeah, and just be aware of like the opportunities that are that are out there. Uh, following your passion, whatever that might be, is a pretty significant part of that. And since you have a big view of, of the robotics field because of your blog, is there do, what, where do you see this going? Do you have any insight on on the future of robotics? Yeah, so it's really hard to say. I think if there was something that was immediately obvious in robotics, I'd probably be doing that right now. Um, 
I think the real key is to focus on on applications of robotics that can provide value. Um, and a lot of that doesn't necessarily mean making sexy robots because they're awesome. A lot of it has to do with like being in the trenches, finding problems that lend themselves to automation, and then providing value that way and building automated solutions. So it's kind of a chicken and an egg, and I think for a long time, especially coming out of academia, uh, I focused on you know the building cool robots. And so now I'm kind of taking the opposite approach, which is going and looking at applications, and hopefully there will be something that ties back to robotics on, on the flip side. All right, thanks, Travis, for being here with us on Robots. Yeah, no problem. And that's it for today's episode. For more information, videos, and much more, just visit our website at robotspodcast.com. Our next episode will air in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. RFID with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.